Uh, I am Pastor Matt. I am the worship family pastor here at Cross Point Community Church. And uh, I want to start off with a, a story this morning that is told of two old friends who bumped into one another on the street. One of them looked forlorn, almost to the verge of tears. And he looked at his friend and he said, What has the world done to you, my old friend? Well, the fellow said, Let me tell you. Three weeks ago, an uncle died and left me $40,000. That's a lot of money. But two weeks ago, a cousin I never knew died and left me $85,000 free and clear. Well, that sounds like you've been blessed. The fellow said, you, you don't understand. You don't understand, he run, interrupted. Last week, my great aunt passed away, and I inherited almost a quarter of a million dollars. Now, this gentleman was really confused. He said, then why do you look so glum? Well, this week, I got nothing. That's the trouble with receiving something on a regular basis. Even if it's a gift, we eventually come to expect it. This is the entitlement principle that is set in the American mindset today. And this is the same mindset we will see from the disciples of our story today. I've heard it said many times that attitude is everything. The attitude we carry with us through life is truly important. Luke 9.23 says it this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You can't come after Jesus without denying yourself. We talk a lot about the truth that being a Christian means believing in Jesus. But we don't often talk about what it means to deny ourselves. That is such an unappealing message. How do you deny yourself in a culture that says it's all about yourself? Well, I want to continue our sermon series today by having you turn with me in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 6. We're going to look at uh, the book of John, chapter 6. And as you do that, I want to offer a quick review of what we have talked about over the past couple of weeks. In our first message, we looked at who is Jesus? We learn that he is God, and we need to believe in him. We learn that he is the originator of life and light. That he brings life to the spiritually dead hearts of sinful humanity, and he brings light to the darkened souls of the lost. He is the originator of all that we are. Then last week I shared that because of who Jesus is, we need to invite people to come and see. We learned some lessons from Jesus on evangelism. When he called his first disciples, he called ordinary men, Andrew and Philip, who then in turn told others that they needed to come and see this Jesus. We learned that being an Andrew means getting them to Jesus and allowing Jesus to make the transformation. We are to be faithful to bring them to Jesus, and Jesus will do the rest. I want to transition into our message this week by asking this question. Have you ever asked a question 
and not gotten the answer that you were looking for? I, th I think we all have. Many times we even ask a question with an answer already in our heads. Sometimes we'll even frame the question in such a way that even the way we ask it is designed to get the answer that we want. The fact is that's just because that just because a person is asking a question doesn't necessarily mean that they're looking for an answer. Especially if the answer goes against what they are actually looking for. And that's what happened in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in chapter 6. A group of people asked Jesus a series of questions. But they didn't ask him because they were honestly seeking these answers. They were looking for the answers that they already had in their own heads. The problem was, is that the answer that they already had in their heads was wrong. And they were not willing to deny themselves of what they wanted, and Jesus let them know. Let me give you a quick rundown of what led up to this point. During the first part of Jesus' ministry, people were attracted to his teaching and flocked around him. Many attracted themselves to him, some of them wholeheartedly and some of them very loosely. Then came a time when their allegiance was tested. The real nature of the claims of Jesus became apparent. The true disciples were sifted from the false and the deep from the shallow. Jesus' claims for himself and his claims for his followers are such that it is no longer possible to follow him in an unreflective and without fully committing themselves to him. And that's where we come to our chapter today. Where Jesus had just finished feeding a multitude with five loaves and two fish. These people had a need for food and Jesus saw and met that need when he fed them. However, look with me here in verse 14 of chapter 6 and see how these people responded. After the people saw a sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. These people, they were stuffed and happy to have been fed for free. And because of that, they saw Jesus as their meal ticket. They wanted him to feed them forever, for free. They could have all of their needs provided for, never have to work another day in their lives. And that is exactly what they thought. They thought that Jesus could feed them for free. And so they wanted to make Jesus their king. But Jesus didn't have anything to do with that. Because that's not the kind of king that he came to be. So what did he do? He ran off. And he ran all of them off. And he sent the disciples off in a boat to Capernaum by themselves. He went up on this mountain to pray. And then a storm came up while the disciples were in the boat, and Jesus met them out there by walking on the water. And he calmed the sea. And it says immediately, they reached the shore. Now look with me at verse 22 through 24 and see what happens. 
The next day, the crowd that had stayed by the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Notice what it said there in verse 24. What was this massive crowd of people doing? Well, they were seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. But once again, we find that they were seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They were seeking Jesus for what he could do for them. They saw that he could make food for them. They liked having their bellies filled for free. So they sought Jesus so that he could be their meal ticket. Don't think that these people who were seeking Jesus were seeking them for him to save them from their sins. No, they were seeking Jesus only for the things that he could do for them. And throughout the rest of this passage, we see how Jesus responded to them. The people came to Jesus asking questions. But their questions were not honest seeking questions. The people had already answered that, those questions in their mind. And they wanted Jesus to answer it the same way that they were hoping. Their selfish attitude denied them the ability to see Jesus for who he is and what he can do to save them. And with each answer that Jesus gave, the people became more and more irritated. Instead of bending their wills toward Jesus, they stiffened their resistance to him. And as Jesus shows himself for who he really is, people many times don't like it, and they resist him. As we look at this passage, we're going to see these questions that these people talked about and asked. And then we'll see how Jesus answered them. The first question starts in verse 25. And Jesus answers them in verses 26 through 27. Look with me there. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, where did you, or when did you get here? Jesus answered this way, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, it, it seems like a pretty straightforward question for them, doesn't it? Jesus, when did you get here? But notice, Jesus knew better. He knew better. Jesus is God, and as God, he only knows he, what the words we speak, but he also knows the motives of our hearts. And that brings me to my first point. Jesus wants us to follow him with pure motives. With pure motives. Jesus knew the motives of the people's heart who were asking him these questions. He knew they really didn't care what time he got there. He knew their motive was not curiosity. Their motive wasn't a friendly conversation. Their motive wasn't even that they were honestly seeking Jesus. Their motive was that they wanted to have 
more of their physical needs met. After all, they were hungry again. They'd follow Jesus all the way around the lake, and rather than recognizing the fact that they were being offered the real solution to their need, they were asking to have this perceived need met. And Jesus reminded them of the importance of what he was offering them in his teaching. And then continues to teach them rather than to meet this perceived need that they had. Their motive for asking the question wasn't an honest motive. Their motive was that they had physical needs and they wanted Jesus to fulfill them. And he said, I know that you came to me to have your physical needs met. But I didn't come here to fill your physical desires. I came here to take care of your spiritual needs. You know, our physical needs, they come and go. Jesus had just filled their physical needs less than 24 hours ago for them. And notice it didn't last. Jesus came to fill a much deeper need than that. He came to fill a spiritual need. The need to be cleansed of our sins. The need to be forgiven of righteousness that we can never earn of ourselves. The need to have peace and contentment and fulfillment no matter what our physical circumstances might be. But that wasn't what these people were looking for. So they asked Jesus another question. Look with me at their second question here in verse 28. Jesus answered in verse 29. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Once again, it's a pretty straightforward question. But this time, it's a whole lot bolder. It's like they knew that their motives had been exposed, so they didn't beat around the bush anymore. Here's what they did. They said, Jesus, how can we do miracles like you? That's pretty bold, don't you think? Jesus, I've seen you do miracles. I want to know how you do them so I can do them for myself. You know what Jesus did? Once again, he didn't answer their question directly. Once again, he immediately dug beneath the surface to expose the real issue behind their question. And this time, he exposed their unbelief. And that brings me to my second point. Jesus wants us to follow him with the right belief. We need to follow him with the right belief. Did they believe that Jesus could do miracles? Of course they did. They had just seen it with their own eyes with the feeding of the 5,000. And why did they follow him there then in the first place? John tells us here in six two, verses, chapter 6, verse 2, A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. They saw Jesus do miracles. They knew that he could do miracles. But if the Gospel of John is teaching us anything, it's teaching us that seeing is not always believing. Because it takes absolutely no faith to see a miracle. What takes faith is believing in the one who can perform the miracles if he so chooses. And what takes even more faith is believing in the one who might choose not 
to perform the miracle. Jesus knew that the people did not believe in him for who he is. And they only saw him do this really neat stuff. And they wanted him to tell them how did he do it. So that they could do this really neat stuff too. But Jesus exposed their unbelief. And when he exposed their unbelief, he told them it's not about working miracles. It's about believing in the greatest miracle of all. It's about performing not about performing wondrous works. It's about seeing the wondrous work of God and believing in the Son who He sent. If you come to Jesus looking for power for yourself, He's going to expose you for your unbelief. Jesus calls Him, calls us to believe on Him. Look with Him to faith, believing for the miracle of salvation not some sort of other miracle working power. That's not what these people were looking for. <coughs> and they asked Jesus another question. Look with me here at verses 30 through 31 and 32 through 33. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus replied this way, Very verily I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. <clears throat> Now, things are starting to get a little confrontational. Things are starting to heat up a bit here, and they've asked Jesus to show them another sign. Jesus, I know that we've seen you heal lots of people. I know that just yesterday we saw you feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, but that wasn't enough for us. Let's see something else. What else can you do? Do another trick for us, and then we'll believe in you. Then they brought up Moses. The Jews loved to bring up Moses. They basically said, Moses gave us manna to eat every day. Why don't you do the same thing? It's almost like they were taunting Jesus. You think you're special. If you were really special, you would do what Moses did. Once again, that points out their horrible unbelief. But Jesus had already exposed that. So that brings me to my third point. <coughs> Jesus wants us to follow him with a strong faith. These verses were further proof of the wickedness of their hearts, of the people. Like most unbelievers, they wanted to see first and then they would believe. But that's not the order of how God wants it to be. God says to sinners, if you believe then you will see. Faith must always come first. Jesus told them that it was not about Mo what Moses gave them. He told them that it was not about the life that God has that came from Moses, but that God is the one who has offered them his son. And when Jesus did that, he struck right at the heart of their religion. He thought they could achieve this on their own righteousness through the law of Moses. But the law of Moses is just like the manna of Moses. 
it quickly perishes. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit of God gives life. In other words, the only thing that the law can do is to show us how far we fall short of God's perfect righteousness. Galatians 3.24 says it this way, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. <coughs> and when looking into that mirror, we see our sin. The only thing that it can point us to is our need for a Savior. The fact that Jesus wasn't interested in those who fake it. Francis Chan says it this way in his book, Crazy Love. In the parable of the sower, Jesus explained that the seed of the truth is the word of God. When the seed is flung onto a path, it is heard but quickly stolen away. When the seed is tossed onto the rocks, no root takes hold. There's an appearance depth of growth, but because the good soil, but because of the good soil, it only has a surface level. But when the seed is spread among the thorns, it receives, but is soon suffocated by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. But when the seed is sown in good soil, it grows, it takes root, and it produces fruit. Then Francis Chan goes on to say this. I think that most American churches are the soil that chokes and sees because of all the thorns. Thorns are anything that distract us from God. When we want God and a bunch of other stuff, then that means we have thorns in our soil. A relationship with God simply cannot grow when money, when sins, when activities, when favorite sports teams, when addictions or commitments are piled on top of it. He said, most of us have too much in our lives. As David Gortz says it this way, too much of the good life ends up being toxic and deforming us spiritually. A lot of things are good by themselves, but when it's all together and keeps us from living healthy, fruitful lives for God, it's not good. So this question is asked by Francis Chan. He says, has your relationship with God actually changed the way you live? Do you see evidence of God's kingdom in your life? Or are you choking it out slowly by spending too much time, energy, money, and thought on the things of this world? Are you satisfied with being just godly enough to get yourself into heaven? Or to look good comparison to the others around you? Or can you say with certainty, like Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Too many times the goals of American Christianity are often a nice marriage, children who don't swear, and good church attendance. Taking the words of Christ literally and seriously is rarely considered. And that is for the radicals who are unbalanced and don't go overboard. And most of us want a balanced life that we can control, that is safe and that does not involve suffering. Let me ask you this question. 
would you describe yourself as totally sold out for Jesus? Or do the words half-hearted, lukewarm, and partially committed fit better? When Jesus faced these disciples, he knew their attitude. And their attitude meant everything. Look with me at how they responded here in verses 34 through 40. They came back and said, Sir, always give us this bread. Then Jesus replied this way, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Notice that they have now gone away from trying to question Jesus to as a matter of fact, more of demanding things out of Jesus. They basically demanded, you give us this bread. They ignored everything that Jesus had taught them so far and went back to thinking about only their stomachs. And when Jesus answered them, he exposed their false pretenses. He told them, you keep wanting to know what I can do for you. You keep asking for the stuff that I can give you. But you need to know that it's not about coming to me for what I can give to you, but it's about coming to me for who I am. So they begin to grumble. Look at verses 41 through 52 here. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because they said, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not the Jesus, the son of Joseph, who is a father and mother we know? How can he say this? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for life, for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Do you notice the tone that has changed here? They have gone from asking Jesus questions directly to asking questions now among themselves. They were politely shutting, or they were completely shutting Jesus off in their unbelief. And that brings me to my final point here. 
Jesus wants us to follow him with a total dependence on him. When things don't go the way we want them to, or when we begin to feel uncomfortable about what is being said about our behavior, we do exactly what these disciples did. They begin to grumble. First, they try to discredit Jesus. They tried to discredit his word. This Jesus, he is just a man. As, as a matter of fact, he's not even a very special man. We know his mama and daddy. He didn't come from heaven. And all this stuff about his eating flesh and drinking his blood, how in the world can he do that? And as these people became bolder and bolder in rejecting Jesus, Jesus became more and more vague in the way he talked to them. He's talking about what it means to truly believe in him. Believing in Jesus is more than just wanting him to do the good things for you. It's more than just believing the set of facts about him. Believing in Jesus is a decision every day to deny yourself. Kyle Eidelman says it this way in his book, Not a Fan, Becoming a Completely Committed Follower of Jesus. Followers are willing to deny themselves and say, I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus over my family. I choose Jesus over money. I choose Jesus over career goals. I am his completely. I choose Jesus over what other people may think of me. A follower makes a decision every day to deny himself and to choose Jesus. Even if it costs everything. We sacrificially deny ourselves for Christ's sake. And it is the clearest evidence of our commitment of love to Jesus. A committed love is the best demonstration through sacrifice. When we deny ourselves for another person, it communicates true love. Now I know that this message might be hard for some of us to hear. It's been hard for me to hear. But Jesus' teaching his disciples was hard for them to hear as well. Look with me here at verses 60 through 65. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is hard teaching. Who can accept this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus has known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Even as Jesus said these things, he realized that some of his listeners did not understand them because they did not truly believe. The difficulty lay not so much in their inability, but their unwillingness to want to believe. Like I said at the beginning, attitude is everything. The attitude we carry with us through life is truly important. 
Luke 9.23 says it best. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You cannot come after Jesus without denying yourself. We talked a lot about the truth that being a Christian means believing in Jesus. But we don't say much about denying ourselves. How do you deny yourself in this culture? As I worked on this message, I myself was convicted about my own actions and attitudes. Am I truly denying Jesus daily? Yes, maybe I might do it on Monday, I might do it on Wednesday, and I might even do it on Friday this week. But Tuesday and Thursday and the rest of the week, I'm too busy to do it. Is that how we think sometimes? How about you? It's a daily occurrence that needs to happen. Has your relationship with God actually changed the way that you live? Do you see evidence of God's kingdom in your life? Or are you choking it out slowly by spending too much time and energy and money and thought on the things of this world? Are you satisfied with being godly enough just to get yourself into heaven? Or can you say with Paul that you want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death? Most of us want a balanced life that we can control, a life that is safe, a life that does not involve suffering. That's what these disciples were trying to look for. But that's not what God called us to do. God called us to move forward, to daily go to Him, to deny ourselves, to lay down what it is that we want to do and to follow Him, take up His cross. Let me ask you this question. Would you describe yourself as totally following Jesus if not, then you need to do some serious business with the Lord this morning. Go before Him in prayer. Ask Him to forgive you for your attitude and to help you to be a follower of Jesus this week. Check yourself. Check yourself. Are you coming with pure motives? Are you coming with the right belief? Are you coming with a to full, total dependence on Jesus? Let's pray. God, we come before you right now, thanking you for this opportunity that we have to worship you. Lord, we know that uh, so many times we fail and we lose sight of what it is that you have called us to do and to be. Lord, help us to go before you today with a right attitude, with a right heart. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come right now asking for forgiveness, knowing that you are there and that you hear us. Come before us now in our worship, in, our, in, in the way that we live our lives. We love you. For it's in your name I pray. Amen. Right now I'm going to ask you to stand and sing with us. And as you sing this song... 
I want you to remember what Christ has done for you. It's so easy to stand at the top of a mountain and to look down at the good things in life. But when we are in the valleys, when we're going through the hardship, when we are struggling, it's not easy to look up towards God. Let's look to Him right now. Let's remember what He has done for us. Let's sing to Him.